Um, this is an introduction from a book called Plus by Frederick Drouot, Lacaton and Vassal. And it was published by the Spanish publisher GG and it is from the year 2013. But the introduction is called Reclaiming Modernism and it's uh, written by Ilka and Andreas Ruby. Reclaiming Modernism. French architects drew out, maybe, Lacaton and Vassal formulate a new strategy for the regeneration of mass housing in France. It happened without us noticing it and without being able to say when exactly it began, as the fact has been whispered in our ears throughout is thousands of times we have almost become used to viewing modernism as something that is finished, a heroic attempt to break out of history perhaps, but ultimately a failure. By now we have arrived at a post-history of architecture that, seen in temporal terms, lies before modernism. The protagonists of the contemporary retrograde see the true historic home of our present in this past that never really existed. A new international style is growing up and is re-embarking on the task of plastering the world with its hom- homogeneity. Poundbury, the model town that Prince Charles commissioned Luxembourg architect Leon Crea to build in the early 1990s, was only the start. In the meantime, even the Netherlands, once the training camp of the modern movement, is becoming the parade ground of contemporary traditionalism. While the state cultural policy still presents Super Dutch as the international symbol of Netherlands architecture, in the suburban conglomerates, a series of entirely new towns in traditional settings have grown up. To fulfil the wish for a dream house in the suburbs, while still avoiding the facelessness of suburbia, Neoconservative architects such as Rob Creer and Christoph Cole have begun to design one housing estate after another of single-family houses on sites in contemporary suburban towns. These estates are like theme parks that take the form of fantastical landscapes with quasi-historical identities. At the same time, a change took place in the political climate of Dutch society, transform transforming it from the home of multicultural tolerance to the new abode of a nationalism that views the immigrant population as the scapegoat of the country and will best like to send these people, quote, back home. In Germany, this return to the past took place in the 1990s under the blessing of historic authenticity. The spectacular reconstruction of the Frauenkirche in Dresden that had been destroyed in the Second World War, restored the building after a 40-year-long intermezzo as a ruin to its previous state, using the surviving original stones. This model case of what is known as, quote, archaeological reconstruction was made possible by a computer program devised by IBM, which similarly simulated the collapse of the building caused by the bombing raid on the 13th of February 1945. By playing this simulation backwards, it was possible to tell precisely where a certain stone in the mountain of rubble that made up the ruin had originally stood in the building. 
This reversed restaging of the collapse of the Frauenkirche in Dresden is the ideological diagram of a clearly unhistorical and fetishist interpretation of the past, for which urban planning from now on can only exist as a combination of reconstruction and restoration. Following the completion of the renovation of the Frauenkirche, the Baroque townhouses of the surrounding district are also being reconstructed in exactly the same manner, with their historical plot sizes and original facades. In contrast to the Dutch example, where the sacred past is generally invoked on greenfield sites, in Dresden it has been necessary to demolish contemporary building fabric to permit the recreation of their, quote, historic state as if in some way or other, the more recent past were not also part of history. This bizarre form of urban development in reverse is not an individual case restricted to Dresden, but has become the modus operandi of German architectural policy. To allow the reconstruction of the Studschloss in Berlin, which was demolished by the DDR in 1950 for ideological reasons, now, following the passing of a resolution by the German parliament, the Palast de Republic, which was built from 1973 to 76 at the same place, is to be demolished also for ideological reasons. The reason for this demolition is clearly not that no function can be found for the palace, as hundreds of cultural events held there in recent years within the framework of the acclaimed initiative Zweischenpalastnutzung prove that the opposite is in fact true. What upsets the political advocates of the demolition of the present in favour of a backward-looking reconstruction is a building's symbolic quality. They can only view it as the architectural representation of the defunct GDR and are unable to see that the building itself and its potential could be exploited to serve a new contemporary use. Erected as the model project of an undemocratic state, for some people this building is seemingly permanently tainted with the ideological odour of those who built it and should therefore, they believe, expire on the pyre of architectural history. How arbitrary this, quote, guilt and atonement principle actually is when dealing with the political biographies of building can be seen in the fact that its champions apply it solely to buildings erected by the GDR regime. In contrast, they can produce eloquent arguments why former representational buildings erected by the Nazi regime, such as the old Reichsbank or the old Luftfahrtministerium, Air Transport Ministry, are entirely suitable for housing the most august political, political institutions of the Federal Republic of Germany, such as the Alsen Ministerium, the Foreign Ministry, and the Finance Ministerium, the Finance Ministry. Fundamentally, the idea of architecture's political culpability is not only absurd because a building is not a political subject, but it is also inimical to culture. 
After all, ultimately we owe our architectural and urban culture to a large extent to the fact that buildings often survived the ideological dogmas of those who built them. If the Parthenon had not been converted into a Christian church, it would not have survived to the present day. Similarly, Hagia Sophia would not still exist if it had not been converted into a Muslim mosque. A number of the most important buildings in our cultural history have survived only because they have been reprogrammed ideologically and generally also functionally time and time again. Naturally, the protagonists of the demolition of modernism would here interject that buildings such as the Parthenon or Hagia Sophia have a claim to preservation due to their undoubted architectural quality, in complete contrast to the Palast de Republic. But who decides what defines quality? Given that every judgment says at least as much about the person who makes it as it does about the subject of the judgment, Every interpretation of quality is tied to its times and lacks an absolute validity. For instance, the Renaissance disparagingly viewed the Gothic era as a barbaric medieval non-culture, for which the Goths were held responsible, pars pro toto. Johann Sebastian Bach's music vanished into a drawer for a hundred years after his death in 1750 because early 19th century classicism could not grasp the mighty, inwardly reflective quality of this Baroque church musician. It was only later generations that were able to appreciate such cultural achievements and to creatively appropriate them for the construction of their own cultural identity. In the present day, there are also good reasons why we should approach passing judgments about the quality of the recent cultural past with a certain degree of caution. Where we can find nothing of value in the architecture of a certain era, this does not allow us to deny its right to exist. On the contrary, the increasing pace of retro acceleration, the period of time after which a previously forgotten cultural epoch is rediscovered, makes the relative nature of every cultural assessment clear. Given the existence of urban challenges that are simply too great to be ignored or eliminated, from shrinking cities to ageing urban populations, insisting on preserving Insisting on preserving well-nurtured prejudices seems indulgently self-referential. It would be far more constructive to tackle such problems using the kind of approach cultivated by Rem Koolhaas in the 1990s under the name Suspending Judgment. Koolhaas introduced this notion of delaying passing judgment in the 1980s to confront the architect once again with realities that an architecture that sees itself as critical tends to exclude. Koolhaas correctly argued that even if one finds contemporary consumer culture alienating, one must nevertheless examine it because shopping penetrates our day-to-day life to an increasing extent. In this way, Koolhaas once again opened up an entire series of morally contaminated zones to critical discourse.
Understood as an ethic of perception, the strategy of suspending judgment places architecture in a position to work on reality rather than ignore it. The more hopeless the realities confronting architects appear, the more this strategy expands their area of possible action. This approach of suspending judgment is also the basis of the pioneering study PLUS, in which French architects Frédéric Drouot, Anne Lacaton and Jean-Philippe Vassal turn their attention to a reality that has so far been treated for the most part with ignorance by French architectural policy. The modern housing developments that were built in the suburbs of Paris in the 1960s and 70s. The population of these Villeneuve-Nouvelles is generally made up of people from lower income groups, a large proportion of whom are North African immigrants. The social and ethnic segregation of today results in high unemployment levels and criminality. The social tension created by this situation has given the Banyol a notoriously bad image that politicians want urgently to improve. For them, the medium of this negative image is the architecture, the large residential towers that represent a highly visible monument to the social plight of the suburbs and the failure of French integration policy. Due to their ideological contamination, the intention is to demolish most of these buildings, out of sight, out of mind, as it were. As most of the apartments in question are occupied, the residents have to be provisionally housed in hotels until new accommodation is erected for them, to be erected for them, is completed. That this accommodation takes the form of single-family houses exposes the ideological and symbolic characters of this measure. Apparently, the single-family house promises to provide the greatest possible contrast to the historically loaded typology of the modernist residential tower block. To achieve this goal, there is seemingly a willingness to accept the clear economic disadvantages of this form of low-density housing. Moving the residents of a tower block into a single-family housing estate uses larger amounts of building land and requires additional access routes. The patent absurdity of this kind of ideological cleansing of the built landscape led Drouot, Lacaton and Vassal to a campaign of political enlightenment unparalleled in the architecture of the recent present. They sought discussions with political decision makers and campaigned for a more sensitive handling of the architecture of the Banlio. Transformation instead of demolition. In their study PLUS, or PLUS, which was produced with the support of the Ministry for Culture and Communication, they show how the money made available for the demolition could be far more sensibly used for the preservation and long-term maintenance of the dwellings in question. The authors of PLUS never entertain any illusions about the fact that in most cases, the architecture of the Banlieu is little better than average. 
they do not see this as an argument for demolition, but as a challenge to architects as a profession to transform and increase the value of this problematic existing substance by means of a kind of architectural tuning. For if you take a look behind the creamy coloured facades, always in a shade somewhere between pink and beige, you find the same kind of skeleton frames used for high-rise apartment buildings in the smart areas of Paris. The difference is that in the latter, in the latter cases, the facades are filigree constructions of steel and glass. The high-rise blocks of the banlieue could look just the same if they were treated with the same appreciation. Consequently, Plus started with the facades and replaced the unattractive external walls perforated with windows that are far too small with transparent floor-to-ceiling glazing so that, for the first time, the residents can enjoy the height and the location of their building in the form of light-flooded living rooms with panoramic views of a largely flat landscape. A further aspect of these architects' transformation is their aim to increase the area of living space, a theme that runs like a red thread through the housing architecture of Lacaton and Versailles. In a critical examination of the modernist ideology of housing for the minimum existence, Lacaton and Versailles attempted in their early and smaller housing projects to double the size of the living area that a client could normally afford for his budget. Consequently, they also attempt to double the size of the living area in plus. This is made possible by a strategy of addition that also recalls earlier projects, both in the Latapai house and the house in Kutra. They placed an extra space in front of the actual living area, which climatically resembles a winter garden that can be programmed by the residents themselves. In plus, they applied the same principle in the form of an extension that expands each apartment outwards with a kind of integrated loggia. This measure is possible because the addition is entirely structurally independent of the existing building. Its weight is carried by its own structure and places no additional load on the old building. This increase in the total living area allows the floor plans to be designed in a more generous way. Non-structural spatial partitions could be removed and out of a number of tiny rooms, a flowing spatial sequence could be made that, thanks to the transparent facade, also includes the external spaces. The principle of PLUS, which involves continuing the existing high-rise building with a structurally independent spatial layer, reduces the disruption caused to residents' lives during the construction works to a minimum. The individual works can be carried out one after the other, always leaving a number of rooms in each apartment inhabitable. The entire new front structure is prefabricated in individual stories and placed against the old building. The outside wall of the old building is then demolished and replaced by the new glass facade. A further concern of the architects of PLUS is the programmatic re-establishment of the high-rise. They make a critical examination of the institutionalisation of social housing in post-war Europe, in which housing was increasingly reduced to the individual apartment. 
uses and spaces where individuals could meet outside their own four walls to experience a sense of social community were eliminated. The Berlin version of the Unité de Habitation, which Le Corbusier realised in 1956 at the Berlin Interbau exhibition, confirms in exemplary fashion the programmatic impoverishment of housing. All the social facilities of the Marseille Unité, which were not envisaged in the subsidy guidelines of the Federal Republic of Germany's social housing policy, were simply eliminated from the Berlin project. What remained was a monofunctional human, human storage institution that simply ignored any other housing needs of the 1500 residents. Plus declares war on this housing monoculture which gradually became the norm for social housing in post-war Europe. In the process, the architects deliberately refer back to the early vision of modernism, in which housing was understood and organised as a social osmosis between the individual space of the apartment and the collective space of communal functions. In addition to Le Corbusier, Le Corbusier's unité, other examples of this approach include the pioneers of Soviet revolutionary architecture. It is above all the lower stories that PLUS reclaims as spaces for the community. For example, the entrance area on the ground floor that formerly housed only the letterboxes is transformed into a hotel-like reception area with security and reception staff and an adjoining lounge and a cinema. On the first floor, there is a laundrette and a restaurant. On the second floor, a kindergarten and a hammam. And lastly, on the third floor, a swimming pool and offices. In this way, the lower floors that are less suitable as living space because they have poorer views and limited privacy can be used to provide attractive and lively spaces for the community. But on the purely residential floors above, uh, two, an attempt is made not to reduce the notion of housing to the apartment alone. Thanks to the spatial expansion of the existing floor plan, by means of the newly attached structure, the individual apartments can be connected by galleries in front of them that can be informally programmed by the residents according to their needs. With this kind of constructional, typological and programmatic overall renewal of modernist residential buildings, the architects of PLUS make it clear that the inheritance of modernism must by no means be seen as something complete or finished, but like every other building or urban fragment, can be appropriated by its successors. They show that the project of modernism can be continued if it is liberated from its original absolute qualities and is related to the concrete needs of a new historical situation. In this work on modernism, some central claims of historical modernism are exposed to fundamental revision and at places lastingly redefined. The architects of PLUS generally sympathise with the intention behind these claims while distancing themselves from the way and means in which they were implemented. One of these claims is the principle of the dwelling for the minimum existence. The intention behind this was to provide affordable living space for as many people as possible. And Druo, Lacaton and Vassal still share this intention today. 
However, they are not in agreement with the modernist conclusion that the minimum amount of space for hu a human being supposedly needs to live should be provided from the minimal budget that society is prepared to provide for housing. For them, the desire for living space is a primordial need that ought not to be conditioned by anticipatory obedience to the dictates of the budget and particularly not by the simplistic mathematical assumption that all one can expect from modest budget is modest architecture. Plus provide, proves the contrary and shows that with the budget available for the demolition of the old housing blocks, the temporary accommodation of the residents and the new construction of replacement dwellings, the existing residential buildings can be renovated, significantly enlarged and improved in terms of quality in a long-lasting way. A further claim of modernism that the PLUS protagonists unexpectedly take most seriously is the free floor plan. Up to the present day, architects generally relate the concept of the free floor plan to the structural aspect of architecture. The free plan of the Maison Domino allows a simple structural system to be used by replacing the walls with a few columns and articulating the space by means of non-structural partitions. It is primarily the architects who profit from this freedom of construction because it simplifies the design process. The flexibility of the spatial organisation promised to the residents is almost never provided. Often its place is taken by a purely aesthetic notion of the free plan, which, as in the case of Mies van der Rohe, is elevated to an ideal space that is apparently open for all kinds of uses, but ultimately tolerates no changes. In contrast, Druo, Lacaton and Vassal in plus make unrestricted use of the changeability made possible by the free plan. Partitions are eliminated or shifted. Solid external walls are replaced by fully glazed facades. Balconies are added to transform the small-minded, pigeonhole approach to housing demonstrated by a modernism organised entirely on a functionalist basis into radically generous living environments at reasonable prices. The change in the overall impression made by the high-rise buildings dealt with in the context of PLUS is so striking that one is involuntarily reminded of the fairy tale of the Frog King. The entire aesthetic poverty of the earlier buildings is shaken off like in a bad dream by a powerful architectural performance that finally reclaims the social achievement of housing as public property and celebrates it in a self-confident way. The uniformly unimaginative character of the existing fabric with its stereotypical perforated facades, it quote enlivened by quote cheerful coloured patterns, which reminds us of the guilty conscience of postmodern architecture, is replaced by a rigorously modern formal idiom with continuous lodges in front of fully glazed facades that refer back to the modern housing blocks at Casablanca where Jean-Philippe Vassal was born in 1953 and where he spent his childhood. That the architects from PLUS referred so unambiguously to, the classic modernism, to classic modernism may seem totally at odds with the fact that they absolutely and unconditionally reject one of the most important claims of modernism, 
namely the tabula rasa, the elimination of the historic city and its replacement with a quote zero degree state from the ground, state of the ground to allow the construction of a new city. Most of the European cities that were destroyed in the bombing of the Second World War were rebuilt in this manner in the 1950s, or, as many would put it, were destroyed for a second time. But this is something that one cannot accuse Druo, Lakaton and Vassal of, because they always continue building the past. Quote, never demolish, never remove or replace, always add, transform and reuse as they reject the modernist policy of decimating history, but formula, formally articulate their rejection in a clearly modernist architectural language, in a sense they cross the opposing ideologies of modernism and contextualism. They contextualise the modern and modernise contextualism. But whereas the contextualist notion of the, quote, city is essentially restricted to the European city as it developed over the course of time, Drouot, Lacaton and Vassal consciously apply the contextualist ethic of preservation to the modern city, which the contextualists branded as the incarnation of the anti-urban. In contrast to contextualism, which seeks to continue weaving the fabric of context in as homogeneous a way as possible, the protagonists of PLUS apply new pieces of a different material to it, producing a kind of patchwork quilt as a result. By preserving the old, they avoid modern architecture's ignorance of history. By designing the expansion in a radically modern way, they liberate themselves from the hegemony of the existing fabric which is in fact the central problem of contextualism, as it forces every new intervention into the formal pattern of the existing fabric. The relationship of Giraud, Lacaton and Vassal to a context is never formal, but always performative. The role of the new intervention does not lie in simulating, simulating what already exists, but in reanimating it and exploiting its latent potential. With this approach of combining a strategic departure from modernism with a formal affirmation of it, the authors of PLUS place themselves in the ranks of those who, in the tradition of Jürgen Habermas, Habermas regard modernism as an unfinished project. They settle the score with a number of its errors, such as the cynical theory of the minimum existence, the inconsequential symbolism of apparent flexibility, and the historic ignorance demonstrated by the tabula rasa. They do not on this account write off modernism, but work on it like a gardener who grafts the shoots from his best new trees onto his existing ones. Their commitment to the possibilities of this kind of reflective modernism often seems like a delayed echo of the farcical way in which modernism is depicted in the films of Jacques Tati. They attempt to restore the modernism precisely that authenticity and historic sustainability which Tati polemically denied it and which in films such as Mon Oncle he could only find in the old city. 
by winning a competition set up by a state housing society for the rehabilitation of the Bois Le Petre Tower, a typical residential high-rise block from the 1960s on the urban periphery of Paris, Lacaton and Vassal have been presented with an have been presented with an opportunity to prove the claims made in their study. The successful realisation of their project could lead political decision makers to reconsider the premises of their demolition campaign and to reformulate the intentions of a renovation urbane in such a way that it actually deserves its name. Okay, so I would normally try to avoid um, someone's take on an architect before reading what the architects had written themselves. Um, so I will do that. But um, it was just to say that I found this book in the library and this was the introduction and it looked like a really solid book um, on their projects, at least this high-rise project. But also that um, I think it's like a good time to just revisit um, what made Lacaton and Vassal uh, so interesting, or let's say good architects, um, in a moment when their aesthetic has been, is seeing, let's say, seen to be quite fashionable um, and adopted without following their principles. Um, I guess the first one is to say that the idea of their aesthetic, aesthetic, or let's say um, that kind of, um, jerry-built aesthetic um, is that it was for the purposes of maximising volume um, or I like that this introduction put it as a kind of argument against the minimum dwelling or existence minimum and when today we can see the minimum dwelling in our time being used as an example as like an exemplar case study um, not just for, not in the case of public housing, but in our city, um, in the case of bourgeois housing, probably quite high middle-class housing in the case of the project that um, Peter Markley has designed in Melbourne. Um, it's worth noting again that um, that's exactly what Lacaton Vassal built their um, position on. I also really like that they the comment about um, the guilt of postmodernism as a kind of wrapping for let's say modernism's failures and I think the genius of Lacaton Vassal is as mentioned that they built um, in a really refined modernism when they were adapting modernist blocks. The other thing I had always dismissed Lacaton Vassal ever since I was studying because PV said that the issue with the, well, he had kind of written them off and um, on the basis that the free plan in their case or this kind of maximum volume was really just uh, a container for consumption. Uh, he would call it the kind of Ikea pilgrimage that you would have to undertake every time you moved house and that um, his justification being that because the architecture wasn't dividing rooms, um, that the furniture would have to do that instead. And you could really see that in the photos, the interior photos of um, 
these social housing projects and it's almost as though like a Tongasal really relished the kind of density of shit and crap um, in these interiors. Um, yeah. Um, also, I, I think it's, I'm going to continue looking into this Jürgen Havanus guy that um, talks about modernism as an unfinished project because I've never heard that, uh, anything about that before. And I'll probably follow this with um, some, like, of their own writings, um, but also there's an article I found that kind of follows that trajectory of um, their interiors and all of the stuff in the interior photographs. All in all, um, hopefully we follow the principles and not just the aesthetic of Lakatong Pasal in our own time. <laughs>